Hello and welcome. You are listening to Onshow, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. I am your host, Marine Botton, and today we are exploring the exhibition Letters of Light. In this exhibition, we will discover some of the oldest and most important manuscripts from the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. For this episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Laurent Erichet, curator of the show and chief curator at the National French Library, and Mariam Dairi, assistant curator at Louvre Abu Dhabi. Join us as we will dive into the origins of the sacred text of the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, and the Holy Quran. Laurent Erichet, Mariam Zahiri, thank you very much for taking us on this tour of this fantastic new exhibition, Letters of Light. My pleasure. This is an exhibition that will take us through a journey to discover and learn about the sacred texts of the three monotheistic religions, namely Judaism, Christianism, and Islam. It's a very rich exhibition with almost 250 artworks amongst which uh, a vast majority of ancient manuscripts mm -hmm. and some exceptional loans from the French National Library. So, Mariam, to uh, understand the structure of the exhibition, which is made of five main sections, can you just give us a glimpse of what are those sections and what awaits us? We start first with the prologue of Abraham. Uh, he is the founding figure. He is the common figure for the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Then we move on to the sections, which you in said exactly five sections. We start with the birth of the notion of monotheism, starting with polytheism, of course, and this shift. And then we move to the oldest sacred texts for each religion. Then we move into the loyalty, sacredness, and transmission of these texts. So we talk about the copyist, we talk about the printing press, we talk about the interaction these sacred texts had onto the world. Then we move into the uses and practices of these texts on everyday use or special use, dedicated uses. And finally, we go into section five, which is the passage of the Blue Quran, and of course, shrines and mirrors of the divine, where we show the most embellished objects for each religion. And finally, in the epilogue, we have the installation of Muhannad Shono, uh, where our visitors can meditate, contemplate, and digest the content of the exhibition. And uh, now I'm turning to you, Laurent, as we're entering the first uh, part of the exhibition, which is uh, titled Abraham, the founder, and we're facing this uh, imposing showcase, this circular showcase in which we find three books, one for each religion. Uh, each of them are speaking to us about an aspect regarding Abraham. So Laurent, what do we know of Abraham and how does he create that bridge between Judaism, Christianism and Islam? Yeah, the choice of these manuscripts, uh, let's take for instance the Mamluk Quran, it's a huge manuscript. It's a beautifully calligraphed manuscript. It's open on the Surat Ibrahim. Uh, Surat Ibrahim is one of the Surat of the Quran. Um, there are a few other Surat where uh, we talk, we know about the story of Abraham, like Surat Al-Anam. Uh, it's a Surat where actually we discover the path 
of Abraham, the way he asked himself questions that led him to the final understanding and the final knowledge that, uh, and revelation that there was only one God and this God was invisible. So for each religion, we displayed a monumental manuscript. And next to the Quran is a Bible, Bible copied in the Middle Ages in France. It has an illumination, and this illumination represents a medieval iconography uh, called the bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Abraham is basically Abraham holding in his hand or in a cloth sometimes all the generations to come because Abraham is the father of all nations. Uh, he is the starting point of the human adventure. So uh, this illumination is uh, absolutely beautiful. It's uh, uh, at the beginning of the book of Chronicles and uh, Abraham, the patriarch with a white beard and holding in his uh, between his arms, uh, all those uh, uh, people, generations to come, is actually uh, represented within the letter A, which is the first letter of the first word of the Chronicles, which is Adam. And the third manuscript is a Bible, Hebrew Bible. It was copied in France, in the eastern part of France in the 14th century, in 1300. And this illumination, full page illumination, is representing a scene of the life of the cycle of, uh, of Abraham, that is the sacrifice of uh, Abraham, on uh, the other part of the candelabra, of the menorah, the seven branch uh, can uh, candelabra, you have a depiction, you have the scene representing the story of Solomon. So those two episodes here in this particular manuscript are uh, put together probably because there is some kind of link between the sacrifice of the son, of the beloved son, and the, let's say, uh, uh, saving, a rescuing of the, uh, the, the baby who uh, was uh, supposed to be split in two parts. And so if we continue uh, our journey to the first section of the exhibition, which is called the birth of the three monotheisms. Maybe one thing that will surprise the visitors is that the first showcase in front of us is dedicated to polytheism. So maybe a point of definition, and you tell me if I'm wrong, monotheism is the faith in one unique God. And of course, it's at the heart of uh, Judaism, Christianism, and Islam. Whereas polytheism is the faith in several. Yeah, it's a, it's the basic and most uh, obvious uh, definition of what is polytheism. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you want to speak about monotheism, you have to say what is polytheism? What is the belief in many gods? Uh, in this particular showcase, we are displaying um, objects, fragments from inscriptions, and especially from the Hammurabi law code. Those are the pieces that we find on the left with this dark stone. Yes, the three pieces dark uh, actually uh, contain the text of the first and most ancient law code written by the king Hammurabi. Uh, it is said that there is a kind of, uh, it's echoing some of the laws contained in the Hammurabi Code are echoing some laws of the Torah, especially the famous uh, eye for eye 
and uh, tooth for tooth, which is also found in the Amorabi Code. The difference between Amorabi Code and the Torah is that the Amorabi Code has no ethical dimension, whereas in the Bible, in the Torah, the commandment is a call for imitating God. We have to be fair, we have to uh, practice justice, not because it's just the law, it's because we do it because we want to imitate God. In this section, so called the birth of the three monotheisms, uh, it's a good opportunity to also just give some historical context of the birth of these three religions. And uh, just briefly, uh, I'd like to, for you to mention when and where those three appears uh, in history. So maybe let's start with Judaism. Okay, th this is very important to mention that Abu Dhabi is actually in the region where monotheism was born. And uh, this is the historical peninsula from the Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Gulf, where a lot of very important events happened. And uh, of course, for Judaism, after Abraham um, became the first monotheist and he moved, uh, he started traveling from his native uh, city to the north to Haran and then down to the, the land of Canaan and then to Egypt and back to Canaan. This is um, the, the Jewish monotheism was born in this region. It's a long process, actually. It's clear now, and this is what archaeology is bringing as a very important knowledge, is that in the sixth century before Christian era, Jews were deported from Palestine to Babylon. And there they came in contact with other religions, and they came in contact with the Mesopotamian religion. The Mesopotamian religion was at that time also in the process of changing, of evolving, especially because the, what we have here is a, in the case is a little uh, cylinder seal. It's a prayer to the god Marduk. And in the sixth century before Christ, Marduk was already kind of emerging as a god above all other gods, all above uh, other deities. So a pre-monotheism. It's a pre-monotheism. We can regard it as a pre-monotheism. We observe the same thing in Egypt with the god Ptah. And Ptah is an important god and very uh, progressively, uh, Ptah is going to be like a more important god than the others. And now if we move on to Christianism, Christianism, of course, is a monotheistic religion because uh, Jesus is Jewish. He was born in a Jewish family and he observed Jewish rites. So his belief was, uh, beliefs was, were in a one God uh, only. Uh, but the, the specificity of Christianism is that it's a new religion that in around the, the first or second century Christian era was aiming at other people than, than Jews uh, themselves. So the first Christians were probably Jews and then they turned to non-Jews, uh, Greeks and Romans who were pagans, who um, they were coming from a different origin. And of course, they had to adapt the message. And so if we're moving on to Islam, what would be the starting date? Okay, we have uh, brought here an uh, inscription 
uh, inscription which is right under the map. It's an inscription related to King uh, Imrul Kais. Imrul Kais was a king who lived in the fourth century. And this, in this inscription, he introduces himself as king of the Arabs. And the inscription is regarded as the most ancient inscription in Arab. This is to say that the revelation of the Quran and monotheism in Islam is really, uh, there is a strong tie with the Arabic language and the uh, Arabic uh, history of the peninsula. So, of course, Muhammad is the prophet of Islam and he engaged in uh, many actions also to try to uh, convert other nations to Islam. And here you have a letter written in a South Arabian script, but it's in Arabic. Uh, it's a letter written by Prophet Muhammad to the king of Himyar. Himyar was a kingdom in Yemen, in the south of the Arabic peninsula, uh, where the different tribes had been Christian, had been Jewish, and finally they converted to Islam. So maybe just to mention that uh, historically the Prophet Muhammad was born in 570, Yeah, right? he was born in uh, 570. This is the birth of the Prophet. He was born in Mecca. And um, from the year 610, he began to have the revelation of Quran. It was a first brief revelation. Then it went on for many years until his death in 632. And this letter is actually signed and dated in 633. Which is very, very close to his passing. Yes. So let's now discover uh, the next uh, section of the exhibition, which is called the founding text, and where we will discover incredible pieces, some of which being the oldest known pages of um, the Bible and the Quran. Yeah, in this section, we try to explain what is the Bible, what is the uh, Gospel, what is the Quran, starting with the Hebrew Bible, and here the fragments of Qumran. So yeah, these fragments are actually the first elements that we see in front of us when we enter the room, yes. uh, just right under this uh, enigmatic uh, jar covered with a lid. And if we really look closely at the fragment, we see that they're quite modest looking, mm -hmm. uh, quite damaged. Mm -hmm. They're taped on this uh, glass. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I'd like to say a word maybe before we dig deeper mm -hmm. about the story of their discovery. Sure. So if I'm not mistaken, the story starts in... 1947 mm -hmm. uh, in Qumran, mm -hmm. in Palestine, not too far from Jerusalem, right. with a shepherd. With what a happens? Shepherd, yes. <laughs> well, the, the shepherds were said that they were actually looking for a goat uh, that was lost. And uh, he was uh, running uh, in the caves and looking for the goat. And suddenly he was about to enter a, a cave. He sent a stone uh, just to know how deep, how deep the cave was. And uh, because it was dark, and then he heard the, something was broken, like some vessel, like some pottery was mm. broken. He came into the room and he said, I saw a jar and I took it, opened the lid of the jar and I found a manuscript wrapped in linen in this jar. This is his uh, testimony, but the archaeologists afterwards, when they started to dig and investigate, couldn't find um, any jar with manuscript. But 
So this is why we don't know exactly what was the purpose of those jars here. Mm. But still, they are very emblematic. They are very important elements in the story and also very beautiful. And so what we found, indeed, are not maybe those within the jars, but those fragments, and there are many, many of them. Many of them, a few thousand fragments were found, mostly on the ground, covered with dust, broken, torn. There is only one complete manuscript. It's the Book of Isaiah. The Book of Isaiah was complete and uh, in the shape of a scroll, uh, whereas we have other bigger fragments, but uh, not complete uh, scrolls, and we have a lot of those small fragments. And so it must have been a feat to really like bring them together, understand that they form books, and here we see like they're organized by line. Yes. Uh, how do we do this? <laughs> uh, the people first had to sort them according to the text, then uh, saying, okay, okay, this is Leviticus, this is Genesis, this is... And then they had to put them in order. And now we have artificial intelligence. It's very easy to actually find the joint, you know, because the artificial intelligence can recognize uh, with the shape of a fragment and with the style of the handwriting that those two fragments fit together. In those days, there was no AI. So the epigraphists, they were to study carefully each fragment, deciphering them, and then they were reconstructing the text uh, very patiently, very slowly, and editing them and publishing. And so those are some of the oldest or maybe the oldest testimonies, written the, testimonies? Yes, of the Hebrew Bible, yes. There is no, I mean, the, the most ancient um, fragments discovered in Qumran dates back from the third century up to the first, second century. We even found uh, in Qumran some Greek uh, papyruses of the, of the New Testament. It probably, it's maybe a mistake. I mean, it was here by mistake. It was in Qumran by mistake. So let's move towards the next showcase. It's also a square showcase, um, which is dedicated to the Christian Bible. And we find in it two books, or two, uh, one leaf and one book. What are they, and uh, why did you decide to bring them together in relation to uh, this section? Okay, in relation to this section, they are a bit like the Qumran uh, fragments. This papyrus fragment that you see here, it has the text of the Gospel of Luke and it can be dated back to the second century, which means that from the revelation, let's say from the life of Jesus, which is supposed to be, I mean, the starting point of the, the historical events that were told in the gospel. Which stops around 30 of the common era. Absolutely. There, there is about a hundred, uh, like a century and century and a half between these stories and the first and the most ancient testimonies of the text itself, the gospel, that tells the story of Jesus. So, and these gospels are in Greek? Uh, they are in Greek because the writers of the gospels, they were Greek-speaking. And the Bible itself had been translated in the third century before Christian era into Greek, first for Jews, and then it had been adapted for Christians. And it became the official translation of the Bible for the Christians. And then the gospel were also um, written in, in Greek. The first language of, for, of the Christians, there is no holy language like Hebrew and Arabic for the Christians. But the first holy language and most important language is Greek language. And then, then the second uh, object is a manuscript 
in a different language? It's in Latin, in Latin, because the first Christians were Greek speaking and the Apostle Paul addressed to Christians who were pagans, who were living in the Greek world and of course who spoke Greek. But then Christianity moved to the West and to the Roman Empire and new Christians needed a, a translation. They used first the translation in Greek, but they very quickly needed a translation of their own into Latin. So this is called the Old Latin translation. It's the first translation that was made in the fourth century, and it was translated in North Africa. North Africa, that is Tunisia, Algeria today, they, they were Roman uh, speak and, and, and uh, Latin speaking provinces, uh, Latin speaking, and this is why this first translation was made in North Africa. Then Geronimo came and he said, this is not really a good translation. So I am going to learn Hebrew. He moved to Bethlehem and he translated anew the Bible from Hebrew to Latin. And this became the first and the official uh, translation of the first Christian communities, I mean in the fourth century. But this text did not really... I mean, you have to wait another maybe 10 centuries or 11 centuries before the Latin text of the Christian Bible is really stable and, and reliable. And if you take some copies of those little Parisians Bible that you have in your collection at the Louvre, would that be, and there we have too, you will see that there are many differences, like many stories that are not in the original Bible, that, but that were added by the scribes themselves. And so let's now move on to some of the oldest written uh, traces of the Holy Quran. Mariam, we have here two objects again. Can you present us uh, what they are and why they are so important for the story of the Quran? Of course. So here we have the BNF Hijazi Quran, which has parts of the oldest, what is known to be the oldest Quran. The one right next to it is a page, a double page, a palimpsest, which means that there was previous text written and erased and rewritten. And that is from the Louvre Dhabi collection. Both are from the seventh century. Mm -hmm. And as we saw in the chronology, the prophet passed away in 632. And so this is very much the earliest, we can say, evidence of the Quran script uh, put together, compiled much later on, as we know about uh, 50 years later. And what is interesting is that uh, the, the script itself does not have the dots. And so for an Arabic speaker today, it will be quite a challenge to read this script, this Hijazi script, which is from this part of the world. Um, and what is interesting is that the writing slants towards the to the right mm -hmm. and is elongated. And also the shape of the Quran is more vertical. Whereas in the evolution of the Quran, it becomes oblique. It becomes more horizontal in order to distinguish itself from the Bible. Uh, can we imagine that uh, maybe it's some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad that maybe not wrote these leaves, but uh, were alive during Close that time? Close to it, yeah. Yes, of course. So they were very much indeed uh, narrated uh, verbally, as we know the, the story of the angel Gabriel who descends uh, while the prophet was in a cave and uh, gives him the first ayah. And then so the revelations were actually given ayat and then compiled into surat. 
suwar we call them and then into the the quran quran al-kareem and we explain it very much that the caliph uthman who is the first to really work on compiling it all together in 650 or so thank you so let's now move towards the third section of the exhibition the title is loyalty sacredness and transmission uh, we won't be able to go over every subsection of this uh, part of the exhibition but there is one artwork that we cannot miss which is the gutenberg bible which is presented towards the middle of the section and this as we say is a revolution yeah this <laughs> technologically is, uh, speaking technologies Speaking, it's an evolution revolution. When Gutenberg is printing his first Bible, his first attempts, and he chose to, to print the Bible in 1455, more or less, <laughs> Gutenberg uh, invented a new technique. Before that, the Bibles were written by hand in monasteries. So that's what we call a manuscript. This is why we call it a manuscript. Manus is hand. And Gutenberg had the idea of um, creating little types like for each letter and composing uh, the text with the different letters and to print it. And this was a revolution only, not only technologically, but also um, intellectually, because from that moment, the, uh, the Bible did not belong only to the church. I mean, everyone could actually print a Bible. You had to have the authorization from the church to print. This is called the um, imprimatur. There was the, it's usually written at the beginning of the book that this book has been printed and got the authorization to be. So it's a license. <laughs> this is like a license. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but of course, this is going to create like a together with uh, learning a new, I mean, all languages are new, like Hebrew, Arabic, Coptic, Greek, and printing is going to be the mean that uh, is going to spread this uh, new knowledge. And this is why this Bible is the starting point and is so important to show it here in uh, Abu Dhabi, in the Louvre Abu Dhabi. It's actually interesting to note that until today, the Bible uh, is maybe the most translated work. Most translated, <laughs> most uh, published. So, Mariam, I'm turning to you as we're uh, moving forward, still in the same section. So, as we see, the text uh, is translated, diffused around the globe. Um, it means that there are communities, of course, uh, behind these uh, shifts. And uh, right in front of us, we're facing a, a black stella that tells us about the history of these communities in the region, specifically in UAE. Yes, so here we have the archaeological objects of the UAE showcasing Judaism and Christianity. First with this gravestone that's in Judeo-Persian script uh, of a person that is unknown to us today of a date that we're not quite certain of today, which is why we mentioned during the Portuguese occupation 1507 to 1650 because we believe that there were a lot of exchanges through um, business, merchants, Jewish merchants who have passed by this part of the world, specifically where this was found in the Northern Emirates of Ras Al Khaimah. Mm -hmm. It was found during the 1970s by a local. It was a stepping stone for a well. <laughs> they noticed inscriptions and uh, brought it to the museum 
What's interesting is that this piece um, is, unfortunately, the bottom part is not as clearly visible as the top part, but we can identify some of the words inscribed, such as marhum. Marhum is a word that is not usually used for Hebrew-Jewish tombstones, but it can signify the presence of the region, uh, confirming so, confirming the, the person who inscribed uh, onto the stone. Um, and unlike the objects right next to it showing Christianity, there was no architectural structure found for this for, for the Jewish presence in the UAE. Um, recent studies say that it could have been a couple who were working in the medical field who passed away. And of course, part of the religion is that when you, as you pass, you are buried uh, where you're passing at that moment, the sooner, the soonest possible, basically, which could explain also another reason for this tombstone's presence in the UAE. And if we look at the remains from the Christian archaeological site? In terms of Christianity in the UAE, there are two sites known to us today. One in Serbanias that was discovered in the 90s um, and one that is discovered more recently in the recent years in Omal Gawain. Omal Gawain is also part of the Northern Emirates where they found both Uh, sites had structures, monasteries, uh, communities, a settlement basically of Nestorian Christians. Here we have an alkaline green glazed bowl, which may have assisted in the preparation of wine for religious ceremonies. Right next to it, we have a bronze lamp, which may have assisted also in the altar. Uh, And uh, right beneath the lamp, we have two chalices who, that were made of glass. And unfortunately, as we can see, the color changes through, through time, but it is glass. And they were used for the Eucharist uh, ceremonies. On the left, we have these two co-freezes from Serbanias um, that showcase motifs like the fleur de lis, grapes, but also the cross. So that will be architectural decor. Exactly. Thank you. Let's move forward and discover our next section. It's the force of the exhibition. So the fourth section is dedicated to practices and we'll move directly to a pretty impressive display to our right. What we see is a monumental page of the Quran, which is put in dialogue with very, very small <laughs> versions of the Quran. So Laurent, uh, maybe can you tell us a little bit about this display and how it relates to uh, the theme of this section, the practices? Yeah. Um, uh, The, the reading of the Quran is a, the reading and the recitation of the Quran is absolutely basic for Islam. And the Mus'haf, I mean, the book itself, was in certain occasions was displayed in the mosque, and especially in the Friday mosque. And uh, we have uh, here an, an incredibly big page of the Quran. It measures uh, one meter 78 
uh, high. It's taller than me. <laughs> it's taller than you and me. And um, it's, uh, it's written in a beautiful uh, calligraphy. It's made out of one single piece of paper, which is also very interesting. I mean, you can imagine a complete Quran of that size, what it could be, how thick it could be, how big it could be. And it's a way to magnify the word of God in a splendid, uh, refined calligraphy with uh, the use of gold. And uh, they probably asked the most uh, skilled calligraphers to copy this manuscript. I'm not sure it's actually easier to calligraphy a big page of Quran rather than a small one, which is <laughs> facing the big uh, page, which is so tiny that you probably used a... Um, maybe a magnifying glass and some special type of kalam to write down this uh, uh, incredibly tiny little Quran. Yeah, maybe just a few centimeters high. Yes, a few centimeters high. You, could, you can put it in the palm in your hand. It holds in the middle of the palm of your hand. And what were they used for? Because it's very difficult to read. Yeah, they were probably not used for, uh, I think, Mariam, it's difficult to say that they were used for reading, right? Yes, they were more, till today, we actually carry miniature Qur'ans like this as a sign of protection. Um, here we can see that the Qur'an is in two parts, two juz'ah, the same as for the one on the left, but we only displayed one because the cover is very much decorative and embellished. Mm -hmm. And on the right, we have the Nano Bible from the uh, Israel Museum of Jerusalem, which you need to zoom in 10,000 times in order to read. So it's just a very tiny microchip. Mm -hmm. It looks like a, just a, a bit of dust almost, uh, on which was uh, engraved uh, yeah. the whole the Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Bible. Yes, yes. Let's carry on and uh, move towards the next section. What intrigues me is that right before entering the next uh, part of the exhibition, we find three posters of movies. There is uh, The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille. There is The Message by Mustafa Akab. And there is uh, Jesus of Nazareth by uh, Francesco Zeffirelli. Why choosing to present those uh, posters in the exhibition? Um, they are very important movies, actually. And uh, The Ten Commandments by Cécile B. DeMille had a very great impact on the history of, uh, of, of cinematography. Uh, it won an Oscar. It won an Oscar. <laughs> and some episodes of the movie have uh, really impressed, especially when it was um, uh, shown on big screens and with Dolby stereo. It, it's very impressive and especially at the moment when the, the Red Sea uh, split in two and the uh, Hebrew passes. Uh, it, it's interesting to see also that uh, Cécile Bellemille was very careful with uh, archaeological details. Charles Eston here is holding in his hand the two tables of the Torah. And you can see that this is not the usual Hebrew script, the square script, which, which you can find in the manuscripts. And uh, the reason why is that actually before the Hebrews adopted the square letters, they were using another alphabet uh, deriving from Phoenician script. Mm. So as a... Um, special care for being faithful to history, 
he used for the movie, he used the uh, Phoenician uh, Hebrew alphabet, which was actually at the time of Moses probably the writing used by the Hebrews and not the, the yeah, Hebrew he script. All for the historical uh, accuracy, accuracy of his movie, and maybe a word about the message, uh, which is a blockbuster, very well known in the region, uh, but also for cinematographic uh, qualities. Can you tell us a word about it? Growing up in the UAE, uh, Rasala or the message was constantly played on television, and that is because they're very much respect the non-representation of the Prophet Muhammad. And through the acting of Anthony Quinn as Hamza, the companion, the paternal uncle of the Prophet, we get to understand what was being said, what was being done. And so this, uh, this movie within this exhibition is really to relate everyday individuals to these religions and perhaps connect them to pop culture. Let's now um, enter the next room, which is dedicated to a very specific manuscript, the blue Quran, and indeed the blue we find everywhere, from the pages, it bleeds onto the walls and all around us. Mariam, what is the story of this beautiful masterpiece? Here we are gathering, we could say almost for the first time, six pages of the uh, blue Quran. The blue Quran that was made between the 8th and 10th century uh, is dyed in indigo blue and illuminated in gold ink. But for each word, it's actually outlined in red. And we can imagine the density of work, but also the large uh, volumes that were made to compile into one Quran, as these pages are very much minimalistic and only have 10 to 15 lines on every page. And so we can very much uh, say that it was not made for everyday use. It was made to contemplate and to really admire the illumination, perhaps symbolizing the light of God and the blue being the cosmos, or also the fact that gold comes from the, the earth and blue representing the heavens, which is one of the ayat in the Quran, uh, speaking of Allah. And so here we have from Louvre Abu Dhabi's collection, from the private collection of Jafar, as well as Zaid National Museum and the Institute, Institut de Monde Arabe in France, we put together six pages, which is very, very much rare. Let's now continue our contemplation into the final section of the exhibition. It's uh, rightfully titled Shrines and Mirrors of the Divine, and indeed, uh, we are entering a room with a spectacular display with a myriad of showcases that are reflected in mirrors and give this sense of infinity and uh, reflect also the, the, the shine and the colors of these artifacts that are extremely precious. And as you said at the very beginning, uh, Mariam, this section is about the most embellished, the most beautiful, it's really an aesthetical uh, proposal about the object of the divine and those manuscripts. Can you tell us a bit, a, a word about some of these pieces? Mariam, you want to say a word about the purple yes. Quran? So in order to showcase the most embellished ones, especially after the blue Quran, seeing that this one is actually dyed in purple, but also embellished in silver and gold, we can see how the decorative uh, works are being done in, in the Quran in different parts of the world. They both, the Quran and here, 
uh, we can see is from Northern Africa, uh, originates. Um, and we can say that also a similar one was previously displayed in stories of paper exhibition at Louvre Abu Dhabi, but put in a, in a different dialogue here. Mm-hmm. And maybe another intriguing object is this uh, candelabra base to the right of the purple Koran, because it's very close to uh, some of the most emblematic objects presented in the permanent galleries of Dhabi, as it is a mixed object, what we call a mixed object. Mm. It looks like an Islamic candelabra uh, base, and yet the decor is different. It's different, yes. It's, there is some calligraphy, and you can see uh, on the upper part, uh, but of course, the scenes that are rep- depicted are scenes from the New Testament and from the cycle of the life of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Maybe, Mariam, you want to say something about it? What's interesting here is that first glance, we clearly see that it's from uh, perhaps Islamic world, but actually it's, it's indeed from Iraq or Syria. But it is very much, in fact, scenes of baptism, scenes of the New Testament, uh, which is very, very clearly uh, seen with the with the dramatic lighting in this gallery. But also, we notice the Arabic inscriptions all around that are perhaps harder to read uh, for a, for a visitor, but they're more embellished to to admire. As as we said, this gallery is dedicated to the admiration of the most beautiful objects that can be considered as shrines or objects of sacredness themselves. And so we have seen a mixed object of uh, Christian and Islamic tradition. Maybe let's have a look at one from the Hebraic tradition, which is this pointer for the Torah. We see there's a very tiny hand at the end. What what is it used for? The pointer is used to, when reading from the scrolls, the scroll of the Torah, which is a very sacred object, and sacred means that you cannot touch it with uh, directly with your hand. And uh, out of respect, and also because the scroll contains the name of God, which makes it a, a very, very sacred object, the most sacred object for Judaism, it, which is kept in an ark and uh, which is always decorated. The scrolls are rolled, they have a coat on it. I mean, at least in the Western, Northern European Jewish communities, it's a bit different in the Sephardic communities. And on the top of the scroll, on the two um, wooden arms, you put a crown. And this crown here is, um, it says actually in Hebrew on it, it was made in the city of Lahwat in Algeria in the 19th century. And yeah, we have this uh, Torah crown that is sitting within the exact same showcase as this Torah pointer. So those brought together... Those put together are related to the scroll as an object. And the rimonim, what they call rimonim in Hebrew, what we call rimonim in Hebrew is actually ruman in Arabic, are put on the two pieces of wood. And when the Torah scroll is is in procession, then you can hear the little uh, bells that uh, are... um, Hanging right below the pieces. So let's move towards the conclusion of our tour. We end with a contemporary installation. Um, Maria, maybe can you tell us a word about this choice to end the exhibition and what this piece is about? 
So to bring the exhibition into the contemporary era, we've invited Mohanad Shono, Saudi-based artist, for a commission, a, a special installation that is uh, inspired by the exhibition or related or just a way of contemplating uh, the content of the exhibition or to meditate. Um, the installation is called The Unseen and it speaks about the black hole in which no object or light escapes from, but it also can speak on the faithful in which they are believing in something that they don't necessarily see. And so we invite visitors to sit and to meditate and to really take in everything they've seen uh, with the um, accompaniment of sound in that installation. It's a dark installation uh, illuminated by light. And uh, this brings us to the end of our tour. Laurent, Mariam, thank you very much. Would you like to say a final word? I think this exhibition is an invitation to discover other religious books, other tradition. And I believe that for some people it would be the occasion to understand a little bit better their own tradition, what, why the book is like this, why verses, why chapters, why surat are long or short, why are they uh, written for, for some of them in Medina, from other in Mecca, what is the most ancient uh, fragments of the uh, gospel or the, what is the Qumran. So I expect people to just to leave this exhibition with an appetite to read those books and to, to share and to, to know better those books. From the point of view of Louvre Abu Dhabi, we can say that it is very much the first time we gather the oldest, the most precious, the rarest, and most decorative objects, treasures, uh, related to the three monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, not only here, but in the world. Uh, it is an exhibition of around 250 works. We can say that it is the largest uh, amount of loans from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. It is also the first time uh, objects, recent discoveries like Essenia are presented outside its emirate. So there's a lot of firsts in this exhibition. It is an exhibition that is really highlighting three religions, of course, uh, Islam being one of the fastest spread religion, but the other two, like we mentioned, in a space gathered at once. It is an opportunity not to miss. Uh, the exhibition is till 14th of January next year, and it's really related to the start of the Abrahamic Accords that was signed here in the UAE. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was an episode of Ancho, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. You can visit the exhibition Letters of Light at Louvre Abu Dhabi from the 13th September 2023 to 14th January 2024. To see pictures of some of the artworks discussed in this episode, please visit the Louvre Abu Dhabi website, louvreabudhabi.ae. There, you will find additional resources and programs to learn about the exhibition. You can now find Onshow on your favorite podcast platforms in English, Arabic, and French. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends and community and leaving us a review. Onshow is produced by Louvre Abu Dhabi. Executive producers Amin Rachash and Marine Boton, 
Recording by Amin Kharshash and Richard Hagen. Post-production music and mixing by Making Waves. Scripting and editing by myself, Marine Botton, your host for this episode. A special thanks to our guests, Laurent Erichet and Mariam Tahiri for their participation and to the team of France Museum for their support. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next episodes.